I was feeling very strongly and suddenly realised, looking at my depth gauge, that I hadn't moved. I hadn't moved an inch. I was still on the top of the rack. I hadn't ascended at all. My air now was down to zero on the red on my air gauge and I knew I was in trouble. Aquanaut My adventures and misadventures in the early days of scuba diving off the Cornish coast. Written and read by me, James Wheeler. Now that we acquired a decent dive boat, of course, it meant that we could search for wrecks much further afield than we ever could when we were diving with the club in the inflatable dinghy. So the uh, the coast of Cornwall was open to us, and uh, you know we could go more or less where we liked, depending on the weather. So when we first started out looking for wrecks, of course it was hit and miss, and what we used to do was to just go to a likely spot and drop over and dive, dive into, the, into the unknown on our own. Of course, I repeat, on our own, which is always a bad practice. But remember, we're now back into professional, semi-professional diving and all the rules of safety went out the window. Bob would always go first and search, and uh, I was always number two diver. And that was how we thought we would might come across some wreckage in, in likely spots. We soon found out that this was hopeless and we'd never find anything doing it this way. So we had to think of another method. And what we did, we invested in an echo sounder called a ferrograph. It was very expensive. It had to be fixed to the boat with a, with a microphone under the hull. And what it did was map out and trace the, the seabed as you moved along slowly. It was indeed a, a very good investment because it mapped out very clearly uh, at the seabed. And of course, anything which was irregular and obviously not a natural shape like a rock, it would, be, it would tell us that it was more likely to be a wreck. So the most common thing you would find, of course, would be ship's boilers, which usually stood up proud like a, the size of a house. So with the, with the echo sounder, we now began to do searching around the coast, very slowly cruising along, um, studying the trace of the echo sounder, hoping that we come across a wreck. Well, on one particular weekend, it was a lovely uh, summer summer's day, um, we decided to, to do this again, and I bought my brother John, he came, and his son Andrew came, and uh, Mick Phipps from Oxford Club came as well, he came down for the weekend. So we decided to go out around Land's End, so off we set. Um, it took us about two and a half hours of steam to Land's End from Newlyn Harbour. And we, when we rounded Land's End to go on to the north coast, we put on the echo sounder. And uh, we hadn't gone very far along the coast when we suddenly picked up what was a very uh, likely echo. In fact, these distinctive shapes came out. It looked like a ship's boiler. And then we immediately and turned around and went over it again to make sure 
in the same direction. And then they headed just beyond the, the Echo Sand, which where the border obviously was, dropped the anchor, and when it held, floated back, drifted back, right over the top of the Echo. So we, we, the boat was stationed right over the wreck, and we did it very well indeed. Bob died first, that was the usual thing to do, and um, he was not down very long when he came up full of uh, excitement and said we'd found a wreck. And uh, we were right over the boiler, and he also said there was a huge condenser there as well. Well, it was obviously an old steamship, which had gone, gone, gone down some years ago, probably back in the 19th century. And... Um, we thought, well, this is it. We're going to get this this wreck. And so we all teamed up and went down in relays. And when I went down, the ship's boiler was quite distinct, sticking up like a huge house. And next to it was the entire ship's condenser, all copper. And, of course, very valuable. Well, Mick Phipps and John, my brother, also came down. We all helped. And what we did was strip the copper out of the condenser in long strips, tie it in bundles, and then have it all hauled up onto the boat, Aquanaut, above. I might say this was jolly hard work, and uh, I forgot to tell you that we were operating between 45 and 50 feet. And now this didn't mean that we get into compression time immediately, because uh, it wasn't deep enough. But I will hasten to say that if you spend long enough down at depth and do too many dives, you will get into nitrogen narcosis problems. And so we only did about three dives each that day before we realized that we could have been getting into difficulties with nitrogen narcosis. And of course, when you're working, it's not like just swimming along and looking for something steadily. You're actually heaving and pulling and using a lot more compressed air and therefore consuming more nitrogen. Well, it was an exciting day. Um, sea conditions were ideal, um, and for Land's End, that was quite abnormal. I mean, it is, it is one hell of a place to be in terms of sea. And this particular day, there was ground sea, but no heavy waves. And um, we were able to lift the the condenser plates and the copper pipe uh, very, very uh, easily onto Aquanaut. But as I say, jolly hard work. And um, the whole operation was a complete success. Aquanaut was loaded with copper pipe and bronze and brass. We'd taken so much of it, Aquanaut was absolutely loaded from stem to stern with all this scrap, precious, semi-precious scrap metal. So altogether a great day and um, of course we had to mark the wreck when we took some landmarks while we were there looking towards the coast. What you do you take a, a one mark at 90 degrees against another at 90 degrees and you know roughly when you come back that's going to be the spot. And of course we had the advantage when coming back of a second dive we know with the echo sounder roughly were to pick up the echo of the border. So a great day, a very successful day. It took us two and a half, nearly three hours to steam back to Penzance um, after all this hard work. 
And um, the next question we had to think about, of course, was how do we offload it without being spotted by the harbour master or in the likelihood that he might report us to the receiver of wreck for salvage, which had not been declared. Difficult to cover it up. They had so much wreckage on Aquanaut. We had sacks covering some of it, but it was so much there. It was obvious to a complete novice that we'd done a lot of salvage on that, on that, on that day, a very fruitful day. So we decided to wait till nightfall. And, of course, in the darkness, we were able to put the boat by the harbour steps, bring the van down, which we had, and load it up on the back of our cars, the boots of our cars, with as much scrap metal as we could, ready to take to the scrap dealer as soon as possible. So altogether, a great day off Land's End, and only possible because sea conditions made it possible. Otherwise, it would have been, I don't think, possible at all in most sea conditions off Land's End. The name of the wreck is a complete mystery. could be any wreck. There were so many wrecks there that we have no idea what the ship's name was. Bob was hoping to find the ship's bell, of course. We never had time to cover the whole wreck because there was so much wreckage there. So the plan was to come back another day and have another good look and see what we could find. So that's our wreck off Land's End with my friend Mick Phipps, my brother John and his son Andrew as helping that day, which made it all more viable. On another wreck we dived on, we actually heard about its location in the pub on the, on the Thursday night, and um, we found that uh, a local diver whose name should be... Should be uh, kept secret probably because uh, he had his own boat called the Pioneer and he would do his bit of salvage on his own, diving on his own and he was a very uh, interesting guy but uh, we didn't know him that well but we heard that he'd found a wreck in Mount's Bay and had taken the ship's sextant of it and uh, apparently the ship's sextant was made of, of, of silver and ivory and, uh, and ebony in the beautiful case so it was obviously a valuable piece of uh, piece of wreckage to find. So we decided to go and look for it. We had approximate marks, but with Aquanaut, we thought, and the echo sounder, we might be able to find it. So on this particular day, we steamed out from Newland Harbour across the bay towards the Michael's Mount, and went out about, I suppose, a mile, and uh, then took the line which uh, had been given us as approximate location of this wreck. And sure enough, within about 10 minutes, the echo sounder picked up something which was obviously wreckage. So we dropped anchor, and uh, that was the next step, to dive and find out what was there. Bob always went first, of course, and uh, on this particular dive, I decided to go straight after him. And what a sight. It was only 50 feet deep, and we found a beautiful wreck, and uh, she was called the Alice Marie. And she was a beautiful three-bastard steel bark lying on her side with a mass streaming out across the, the, the white sand in pretty good visibility. From stem to stern, we swam through her, uh, through the top of the decking, and um, along the side, right round to the, to the bow, 
which had a beautiful pointed uh, prow on it, and searched and searched for something valuable, but found absolutely nothing. We thought we might have found the ship's bell. But the problem was, of course, because she was a, a bark and a sailing craft, there wasn't much valuable material on her at all. In fact, it's unlikely there would have been any copper or bronze on her at all to be worth, worth salvaging. But what a beautiful wreck. I remember one of the um, masts had broken off and it was so uh, such a wide diameter you could almost take a bottle off and swim, in, swim inside the mast. I wouldn't have done that, of course. It would have been dodgy. But it gives you some idea of the size of this ship's mast. So a beautiful wreck, the Alice Marie, and one we were going to dive on many times again. In fact, we took the club out there in our, on Aquanaut several times because she was such a lovely dive, and uh, everybody seemed to enjoy diving on her. Now, not far from the Alice Marie, of course, is what's left of the battleship HMS Warspite. Now, HMS Warspite was a First World War battleship weighing about 38,000 tonnes of steel and she was wrecked in, off um, Mauer's Iron but she was on tow going to the breaker's yard and the story is she broke loose on in a gale and drifted in and of course grounded right next to St Michael's Mount on the, on the, uh, on the west side. Well when I was a boy I remember all the wreckage being taken off her. She was salvaged. She was broken up. They even built a railway line, especially on on the, the, the Harbour Quay in Penzance, to put so much wreckage into the straight into the into the railway trucks and take it away. Your thirty-eight thousand tons of steel is worth salvaging, I can tell you. But some parts of it were still there, so we dived on her the same day, actually, and. Uh, found some nice bits of copper and some brass um, and I remember going into a section swimming into a section which was wide open uh, it was a cylinder in shape and about 8 feet in diameter What quite what it was I don't know but I was able to swim through it and I remember feeling very claustrophobic because there was only a small opening at the other end never found anything of much value but uh, I think one of us did find a, a, a porthole glass, a very thick piece of glass which had fallen out of the porthole, which we took back. So that was a dive on the war spike, but not much to see, as most of it had been salvaged. I want to talk now about the search for another wreck located off uh, some rocks on the Cornish coast called the Bucks. Now the Bucks were off uh, Tatadu Lighthouse and it took about uh, 40 minutes steaming from Penzance or Newland Harbour to get there. I need to explain something about the Bucks. They're called the Bucks because there were two rocks. There's an outer buck and then a separate inner buck which are separated by about I don't know, a couple of thousand yards. And uh, it's a, a notorious spot where apparently, according to Bob, a lot of wrecks had taken place. So Bob decided on this particular day um, to go and search, first of all, for a wreck. The wreck he had in mind was well recorded and she was quite a large ship and she was called the boy David. 
I have no idea when she was lost and found it on the bucks. But uh, no one was quite sure which buck she hit, whether she struck the outer buck or the inner buck and sank. But the story goes that she, she hit the rock head on, bow on, and sank very quickly. So here we go, off to look for the boy David. And Bob couldn't have picked the worst day. It was dreadful weather. The sea was heavy. We had awful low cloud, black cloud hanging over us. So it wouldn't have been very good visibility. And diving conditions, in fact, were not very satisfactory. In fact, I probably wouldn't have decided to dive that day. But uh, when it comes to money, of course, you take the risks and we decided to search for the boy David. The idea initially was to um, try and find it first, try and locate it and see what possible uh, salvage we could do on the boy David. But we weren't quite sure whether she was salvageable or not because we weren't sure of the depth. And you're always limited with depth when you're doing salvage work. And of course, that's because your time below under the sea is very limited, below 100 feet. And you don't have much time to do a lot of, of uh, hard work before you get into decompression problems. So we steamed out there on this horrible day. It was a depressing day. Just the three of us, Bob, Raymond and myself, on board Aquanaut. We reached the bucks and uh, we decided that um, we would not drop the anchor and that Bob and I would dive together for a change and um, try and do a search uh, between us. Well, Raymond didn't uh, dive at all. He was going to be the boatman that day and not anchor the boat but just circle around in the area where we were diving so he could pick us up as soon as we surfaced. Well, we put the echo sander on and uh, it was 130 feet plus in places, so we knew it was going to be a deep dive. So in we plunged and uh, I can tell you now it wasn't a pleasant dive. I followed Bob dive, diving down. He was a lead diver and it was so dark, I could only just see his flippers ahead of me. And uh, it got darker and darker and darker. And soon we realised we were at depth because we hit the thermal barrier at 90 feet, which makes you freeze as if you stepped into a fridge. And uh, we continued dive, diving down. No sight of the seabed whatsoever. Not even a rock in sight, nothing in sight. And it got darker and darker and more gloomy. Uh, it was horrible, in fact, down there. And uh, at last we saw some rocks emerge. And then to our right, I remember, a huge pinnacle rock, which was probably the, the outer buck going all the way to the surface, uh, which is probably, we thought, well, that was where, if the boy David struck that, she would be beneath that, and we'd probably find her. So we swam around the, the seabed, and... Uh, it was pretty uneven and I looked at my depth gauge and we were somewhere between 130, 135 at one point, 140 feet. So I knew that we were deep and we were consuming a lot of, a lot of nitrogen. And um, it, I can tell you something else. It's one of the few dives 
I've been very, well, to be honest, scared. It was so horrible down there. There was something sinister about the place. No life. All the seabed was dull and grey and black. Um, no seaweed because it was too deep because the light doesn't reach far enough down for seaweed to grow. So the kelp, the normal seaweed we would see, was not growing at that depth. It was a very sinister dive. And um, I can tell you now, I was very pleased that we decided to, to not stay down very long. Um, another word I would like to use here is spooky. It was spooky. It was like being in a dark abyss. And I've never known such a dark, deep dive. And the seascape was so, well, so boring. Uh, no wreckage in sight. Nothing. We did what we called a circular sweep around the, around the rock and realised that we were soon getting into serious decompression time and decided to abandon the dive. Um, on surfacing, it took us a while to come up. I remember I had to inflate my fancy life jacket to give me more buoyancy because I was fighting with my flippers against the water pressure to get up from that depth. It was hard work. You had to be pretty fit to do this job. Um, we got to 30 feet and we decided to stay there and we seemed to stay there decompressing for a very long time. It seemed ages. You must have done a good 10 minutes or more, if not, if not 15 minutes. Um, and then surfaced to 15, 20 feet below the, below the surface rather and then did another four or five minutes there and then surfaced into a heavy choppy sea. In fact, it was so rough that I couldn't even see the coast. And uh, Raymond, of course, must have been motoring around with the aquanaut and spotted our orange hoods, which we always wore when we dived, so we could easily be seen in the, in the waves, and came around and picked us up. I can tell you now, I was very, very glad to abandon that dive. And... Uh, I didn't really want to dive there again. So that was the failed search for the boy David. We never found the boy David. Whether any divers have ever found her since, I can't tell you. But I do know that uh, she's supposed to be there. But in reality, of course, at that depth, you couldn't do much salvage without getting into serious decompression problems. And it seemed... Uh, a good idea not to even attempt it if we ever found her. Now, during the course of our wreck searching, um, we soon realised that uh, if we were to make any money, we would have to use explosives. And uh, I will not relate to that at this point, but I'll come back to it, as we had to train up for it. I will say that uh, we, we dived on a lot of, of wrecks, over the course of time. Uh, we salvaged quite a few. So many, I have, however, I won't relate them to you because they're all rather samely and uh, not that very exciting. But I always remember that how hard it was working on the water because you're working against time, you're working against cold, you're working against fatigue. And uh, um, I want to come back to one of the last wrecks we dived on before we started using explosives. We went back on the wreck of the Heliops in Mounts Bay, and uh, let's talk about that now. 
So we were re- going to return to the Heliopsa. You might remember I talked about this uh, large ship that was sunk in Mount's Bay, about two miles out in quite deep water. And so we saw from club dives that she had a lot of semi-precious metal, copper and brass and bronze on board. So we decided to go out there with Aquanaut and dive on it and see what we could recover. So on this day, it wasn't a very pleasant day. It was a bit choppy, I remember the sea. And uh, we went out in Aquanaut. And we had to uh, plan our diving, of course, because of the depth. Bob went down first. Oh, by the way, we were very lucky. We dropped the, the anchor right on top of it. In fact, uh, we were so accurate, it was unbelievable. And, of course, we were easy, it was easy to find the, uh, the helops because we now had no echo sounder and we could pick up the shape of the ship quickly on the, on the photograph. So Bob went down first with hacksaw and jemmy bar, anything to help us recover the, uh, the copper and so forth. And Bob was down, I forget how long now, but he did get into decompression time. And of course, that's very easy to do when you're working hard underwater, using more air, consuming more nitrogen, and of course, getting very tired. So it's now my turn to go down. And uh, I went down with it, did the same thing. Uh, and uh, we were fortunate that the anchor had dropped right into the, into the engine room of the, of the Heliops, because the upper deck had collapsed with age, I guess, onto the sea. And we were right, I was working right next to the boiler and there was a lot of copper pipe there. So I started using the hacksaw to cut it all off. Well, of course, as I said just now, when you're using a hacksaw, you, uh, you're using more energy. You're not just swimming around. And uh, I must have taken in quite a lot of, lot of nitrogen. And uh, the rope was ready for me to to tie this copper pipe to and send it up to the surface to be pulled up to the surface and I had done that. I came up um, okay, uh, slowly of course because of the depth, did my uh, decompression on a shot line and got back into the boat safely. Well now the fun begins because uh, we recovered quite a lot of copper but we suddenly realised when it was time to go home that the anchor were not free. It was completely solid jammed in the wreck. And we had no choice either to go down and free it or to cut the anchor open and come back on another day. Well, Bob decided that we should, somebody should go down and free it. And uh, I looked at my air gauge and I was a, I had the only one on board who had enough air to go down again. So I got my bottle on jumped over the side and went down again hand over hand over the anchor rope and found myself right into the centre, the belly of the engine room of the Heliops, the wreck of the Heliops. Well, the anchor was solidly caught, hitched around an iron girder and um, with the aquanaut uh, straining above, the, the anchor rope was like a violin string and to free it was very difficult. So I had to give a signal by pulling on the rope and that one must have motored forwards, making the rope slack, the anchor rope slack. And that was my chance then to free the anchor. Well, it was a real struggle, I can tell you. It was really jammed in. I didn't think I'd ever get it out. And in doing so, 
I suddenly realised that I was breathing metal. Now that needs to be explained. When your air in your bottle is getting low, you can always tell because you start the taste of metal in your mouth. And uh, I was sucking in air and the metal taste was getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And I knew when I looked at my depth gauge, I was at over 100, just over 100 feet and I was virtually running out of air. So I did manage at long last and a last effort to free the anchor, which went flying away in the distance of the darkness of the of the poor visibility. And I planned to come up with the anchor, but that was not going to happen. I had now to surface myself, and I pushed myself off the wreck with my feet to start to ascend. I was feeling very strongly and suddenly realised, looking at my depth gauge, that I hadn't moved. I hadn't moved an inch. I was still on the top of the wreck. I hadn't ascended at all. My air now was down to zero on the red on my air gauge, and I knew I was in trouble. I had to come up without any air. So, thank God I had my Fenji life jacket, which has a five cubic foot bottle of compressed air fixed to it, and a mouthpiece, which you have to learn to, to breathe from because there's no, no demand valve on it. You have to do it manually by pressing a stopper. And uh, I inflated my life jacket and put the mouthpiece, took my mouthpiece out from my, my breathing kit and then put the Fenzy mouthpiece into my mouth to take some air. I can tell you now, I thought my number was up because I didn't seem to move. And at last, after such a real effort, I began to feel that I was, I was ascending. And uh, I had to learn to come up by inhaling the air from my bottle, from my rescue bottle on the Fenji life jacket, and then to exhale. Otherwise, I would have got an embolism because the air would have expanded in my lungs and burst my lungs. So I came up very, very slowly and relieved to get to the surface bobbed up fast from 30 feet because the life jacket gave me the extra lift that I needed and my goodness when I reached the, the surface of the sea I was so glad to reach to um, breathe some fresh air I had no air left at all none of my bot diving bottle none of my Fenji bottle I consumed it all when I got to the surface I was violently sick and uh, I guess that was put down to the, t the taste of the metal I was breathing and uh, the anxiety I had, thinking I would never come up. <clears throat> I didn't do any decompression. I didn't have any air to do it. So I had to risk, take the risk and swim to the boat where they picked me up. And I was violently sick again when I got, got on board Aquanaut. And... Uh, I didn't have the strength to say anything to Bob and Raymond until for a while. And on the way back, going back to Newland Harbour, I, I decided not to tell them what I'd been through. Because Raymond, I think, would have exploded and said that was a very stupid thing to do. On reflection, it was to go down with virtually only 30 atmospheres left in my bottle to over 100 feet on my own, the free and anchor. You ask yourself now, was the anchor worth it? Which was more valuable, to lose the anchor or to lose my life? 
for the sake of an old iron anchor and a lot of rope. But I did it and it was a mistake. A mistake I learned the hard way and be sure never to try that yourself if you take up diving. Never go and free anchor an anchor on your own. You never know what's going to happen. But I didn't tell Wayman, I didn't tell Bob. So I was a bit anxious that they would be so angry, angry for sending me down and upset. So I didn't say a word to anybody to this day, to this very day. So freeing the anchor on the Heliops was a, uh, an ex- expensive business. It could have cost me my life. And uh, I have one regret diving. It was that day diving on the Heliops. I should have mentioned, by the way, that uh, I'd had no after effects from decompression sickness or the bends. I'd done two dives in excess of 100 feet, and that course is always a bad idea. But I was very lucky I didn't get decompression sickness, and I was very fortunate that day, but never to do it again. In my next episode, I want to talk about my wonderful encounter diving with a dolphin. And uh, that was the most wonderful experience of my life. I shall never forget it to this day. And how he became so friendly with us every time we dived. And then I'll go on to um, talking about the explosives, the kind of explosives we were going to use and get trained up to use before we could get our explosive license. And finally, I'll talk about our first uh, time we used explosives underwater and the big mistakes that we made, uh, which could have been pretty dangerous and, in fact, fatal.